we're in Acts chapter 16 this morning. You know, there are, there are times where we live as believers where we can't anticipate uh, that the Lord is about to use us in very significant ways. There are times as we're going along, things are just running normally, everything's steady, and we don't understand because we're finite and because we don't always know how the Lord's going to work, that, that God is about to do something very spectacular, not just in our lives, but through our lives. And a lot of times those uh, instances, those times where God works in a powerful way, come at the end of a time of great difficulty. And we know that the trying of our faith works patience, and we know that James tells us that we need to let that work of trial and patience have its complete work so that we'll become more like Christ. So usually the way that we approach trials, usually the way that we approach difficulty is from that perspective. We try to uh, discern from the Lord what he's doing. We try to figure out how we're going to cope with it, uh, what the Lord wants to teach us, how we can mature, how we can uh, be shaped in the long run by what God has allowed in our life. But spiritual tests and trials are not just about us. And though we tend to be introspective and and our faith increases and we say, Lord, what do you want to do and what do you want to teach me and, and, and how should I advance as a believer because of this trial and why have you done this and all the other questions that we ask when things are difficult, we have to realize that it also goes beyond us. That it's not just about what God's doing in our lives. Many times, almost always, God has a broader purpose in that time of difficulty that is outward. Where he gives us the opportunity to profoundly influence other people through what he's doing in our lives. Now, the apostles and the early church didn't have the kind of material, tangible specificity that we do. And... And they had uh, um, opposition that was far more than we ever have faced. So a lot of times, they're just as much in the dark as we are. They didn't have an idea of what the Lord was doing next. They knew the Lord was at work, but they didn't know what was around the corner. Even though as we read, it seems like, well, the Spirit was making it all clear for them. But you've got to uh, infuse yourself into the text. Many times, they didn't know what was happening next. And they didn't anticipate that as things are going along wonderfully that, boom, all of a sudden something's going to hit and things are going to be difficult. Now, what we can learn this morning as we study through this text is, is how they responded to those times of difficulty. We see again and again that they're not only, um, they're not only willing to go through those times, but they're actually happy about it. That as they face difficulty, as they face trial, as they face opposition, that, that they are content to be in those times because they have a greater understanding of what God is doing. Now, what I have been impressed with and what we've seen all throughout our studies of the book of Acts is how adaptable they were. How much they were willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, even when it was uncomfortable and unpleasant and uncertain. It's really one of the hallmarks of the book of Acts. And I hope you and I have been challenged about that in terms of walking by faith and in terms of being willing to yield our plans to the Holy Spirit because that's when God works in the most powerful way. But what we've also seen as we've gone through beyond their adaptability is their attitude of expectation about how the Lord would use them. 
Because it's one thing to be flexible and compliant, which is hard for pretty much all of us because we don't tend to like change, especially when it makes us uncomfortable. So it's one thing to be flexible and compliant, but it's another thing to be joyful about being flexible and compliant. To, to say, Lord, that's wonderful. You want to change the situation? That's great. You want to put me in difficulty? That's fantastic. I will trust you. I will walk by faith. You want to put me through a trial? I will praise your name. Jesus is the Lord. I, I will go with that. And you'll be worthy of worship just as much as when things are going great. That's where it gets difficult. That's, that's where we struggle a little bit because it requires personal sacrifice. But we need to see the greater importance of how God is using us in this way. Now, examples of this are all throughout the book of Acts. And we've seen them throughout the first 15 and a half chapters. And I think if there's one word that characterizes the early church, it would be that the word is unselfish. The early church was unselfish. Yes, they were spirit-filled. That's certainly a characteristic. But as we look at this, I think we're constantly aware of how unselfish they were. And, And that stands in contrast as we get into the latter part of the first century and we see the, the epistles that Paul writes to the other churches and we see the struggles that they're having and the arguments and the selfishness and the introspection and, the, and, and all the other problems that were happening. Corinth is the perfect example of it. What a contrast that is to the book of Acts where they were unselfish. Of course, being spirit-filled and being unselfish are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You cannot be spirit-filled and not be unselfish. And you cannot be unselfish and not be spirit-filled. The more we're under the Spirit's complete control in our lives, the less we're going to think about ourselves, the less we're going to complain about what we want and what we aren't getting, and the less we will be annoyed by sacrifice. Being unselfish gives us a very clear and concise spiritual perspective. Being selfish does just the opposite. This passage proves that. That's a long introduction, but let's get into the text, Acts chapter 16, because here we're going to see how the apostles react, uh, how Paul and Silas react to a very difficult situation, and what their perspective is and what their response is. Let's start in verse 19. When her master saw that the hope of prophet was gone, remember we're talking about this slave girl that was kind of saying day after day, these are the bondservants of God, and Paul says, come out. When her masters saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And he called for the lights, verse 29, and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, this incident that we see, and we didn't read the first part of the context, but we studied it last week, verses 14 to 18. We have this incident with this slave girl. And what's interesting about it is mostly the crowd's reaction. How they responded when Paul says to this spirit, this evil spirit that's in this woman, he says, come out of her. And immediately it comes out and she's changed. And no longer does she have the the evil power that she had had before uh, that we see in those verses. Now, when the men who own her, when the men who are making money off of her, see that their source of profit is gone, that she's been delivered from this evil spirit, their first thought is not to be happy for her and to say, isn't it wonderful that you now are not under this bondage anymore? Their first thought is to be ticked off because they can't make a buck off of her anymore. They're ticked off because their money's gone. Now their their little traveling road show, their little uh, freak show, so to speak, is gone, and now they can't make money off of it. And apparently she's well known in the city because uh, not only are they irritated, but the crowd gets irritated and the crowd starts to get stirred up and become convinced that Paul and Silas are bad news. But I want you to see the reasons this morning in the text why they give for being angry because they make no sense. They go and drag Paul and Silas into the judges think the Supreme Court at this point, kind of the the chief justices of Philippi, they they drag them in and they say, they're throwing our city into confusion because they're Jews. Now what's ironic about that is that Philippi was an international city. It's the capital of Macedonia at this point. There are all sorts of races and nationalities that are coming through this city. Uh, I want to show you a couple pictures, excuse me, of what Philippi looked like if you look up at the screen for a minute. These are the ancient ruins of the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. Uh, This is the the city that you can see, kind of the outline of the ancient city. Uh, There's another town now that's uh, kind of to the south of this. Uh, But this is the ancient cities. If you go to the next slide, uh, this is a closer up view of what it would have looked like. These are the actual ruins from Paul's day. So Paul and Silas would have been uh, in something that looked like this. If you go to the next slide, please. This is another view of, this is called the Agora, which was like the the common marketplace, the town square, so to speak. So Paul and Silas would have walked through here. I mean, this is uh, amazing to be able to see this because most cities aren't aren't, uh, saved in this way. So they're in this place. Now, this is um, the amphitheater, the original amphitheater that was in Philippi, and this is where the jails were. So when we read that Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates and they were put into prison, this would have been the place. Many times in a city, this is true in Caesarea also, that if you see to the right of the screen, those stone places at the back part of the, of the amphitheater, that's where the jail cells were, and they were underneath the ground. So you have some perspective of what this looks like. If you go to the next slide, I think I've got one more here. 
This is another view of the amphitheater. So you can see what it felt like. Uh, hold off on that one. We'll come back to that one in a second. So Paul and Silas are brought before the magistrates. They say, well, they're stirring them up because they're Jews, even though there were plenty of Jews in the town. The second reason is they say they're proclaiming customs that we can't follow because we're Romans. Now, again, the city's on major thoroughfare into Europe. So to say, well, they're, they're teaching things that, that we can't follow as Romans, it would be like going into New York and saying, well, well, you can't teach certain things because we can't follow them. In New York, there's everything. Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, atheists, uh, devil worshipers, there's all kinds of stuff in New York. So to say, well, you can't teach one thing because we can't follow it, that, that's ridiculous because there were so many things around them. They're trying to find a way to to uh, obscure the fact that something spectacular had happened spiritually. And it's interesting that as they make these accusations, they completely ignore the fact that the girl had been the one that had provoked this situation and that the only reason that they're uptight is because they're not making money off of it anymore. Nobody saw the irony of that. Nobody saw the travesty of that. Nobody's bothered or happy for the girl that she's delivered. It's just, we can't listen to these guys anymore because they've taken our money away. Now, if this was true, and if Paul and Silas were really evil, and they were frauds, and they were a problem, then telling the spirit to come out of her wouldn't have been effective. The problem that they're wrestling with is this this actually happened, that God had actually worked, and they don't know what to do with that. One of the major dilemmas for people who resist Christianity and try to say that it's false and that it's a crutch for weak people is that if it's not true, what's the big deal? If what we're doing this morning, if the Bible's not real, if Jesus Christ didn't die for our sins and rise again, if salvation is not just through Christ, but it's through our good works, then what do people care about what we're doing this morning? Why are they bothered by this? We're just fools at that point. So just ignore us. If Christianity is not real, then why waste your time attacking it? Because ultimately, it's going to collapse on itself. The reason people can't allow that is because they know that the gospel is true. And because it's true, they're confronted by it. And when they're confronted by it, they realize that there's not really a defense. So the response as we see, is either completely ignoring the gospel or the more common response is what we see here. It's hostility. A normal response to somebody teaching something that, that didn't fit, that they didn't like, would just be to ignore it. Or at the very worst, if they were really causing a problem in the city, to, to go through due process. But that's not what happens. There's no trial. There's no witnesses. There's no defense. There's no deliberation. There's just vigilante justice. The crowd gets violent. The judges tear off the robes. They say, beat these guys, and they beat them mercilessly, far beyond what's normal. Then they take Paul and Silas, and they throw them into jail, and they say, these guys are real troublemakers, so I want you to guard them securely. So the jailer takes them. He puts them in the most innermost parts of the prison, and if that wasn't enough, then he puts their feet in stocks. Now, that's an unusually harsh reaction to something that wasn't even a crime, but it shows how angry the truth makes the enemy. 
The truth makes the enemy angry. And he will go to any lengths to try to stop the message of the gospel. What we're seeing here in chapter 16 is normal for the book of Acts. It's not normal in our culture, but someday it may be. Accusations will increase. Trumped up charges will increase. The gospel will try to be stopped. Churches will be hit. Uh, the the, the uh, ability that the church has to minister will be diminished. And punishment may someday be just as customary as it is here in Acts chapter 16. But we need to see that God works through that. That God has a purpose through that. And I want you to look back at verses 22 to 27. Because we're going to see how God works in this situation. I want you to read this and study this very visually this morning. I want you to really have a sense of what this looks like. Paul had gotten a clear leading from the Lord to go to Macedonia. We saw that earlier in the chapter. He had a definitive leading to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's still in its early stages. The initial advance to Europe has begun. Lydia, we see in verse 14, is the first person to trust Christ. The rest of her house gets saved. Everyone gets baptized. Paul and Silas have aligned with other believers. Every day they're praying together. The Lord is working and things are going well in Philippi. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, they're accused. And they're attacked. And they're beaten severely. And they're thrown into jail. If you would throw up that, that last picture again, please. I want you to see, this is the actual jail that Paul and Silas were thrown in. We don't know if this is the actual cell, but, but historians have shown that this is what the jail looked like. Now, obviously, they've excavated it and opened it up, so it wasn't open to the sky like this. But you can get a sense of just how awful this was. So they would have had bars, there would have been a door there that would open up, and they sat in basically what was a cave underneath the ground, with no light whatsoever. There's no electricity, obviously. There were no torches that were in there. This was completely dark, and they're sitting in there. Their bodies are bruised. Their flesh has been ripped open. They probably both have the symptoms of a concussion because they've been beaten severely. There's no one to advocate them. No one really even knows where they are. There's no iPhones. They're not texting and giving status updates on Facebook. I mean, really, the church in Jerusalem has no idea where these guys are. And they go and they're put in this jail cell. And the situation looks grim. They, they may not get out of this. There's no reason to think that they may ever be released from this prison. And I thought about that this week. And I asked myself, realistically, how would I respond if I'm them? How would you respond if you were Paul or Silas? I can't imagine the feeling of discouragement and despair. Maybe disillusionment with the Lord. Why, why have you allowed this to happen? You gave us the opportunity to minister. You called us to this place. We just got here and now we've been beaten up. And we're sitting in a jail cell and we're in the dark and our feet are in stocks and we have no idea what's going to happen next. Lord, why did you allow this? How would we respond? I think prayer would be a natural response. Seeking the Lord for help, asking him what's going on, asking him for comfort, asking him for assurance. Lord, you're going to provide. We trust you. Please give us confidence. Please give us... You know the way we would pray in this situation. But it's what they say next. It's what happens next in the text 
that, that really jumps off the page. Because it says they were praying. Okay, we would assume that. But it also says that they were singing hymns of praise to God. In other words, they're not anxious and they're not fearful and they're not moaning, oh, why did this happen? And oh, Lord, what are you going to do? There's not resignation. There's not frustration. There's not hopelessness. How often when we're in circumstances that are less extreme than this, do we go to those attitudes rather than just being settled in the Lord? We assume the worst and we allow our faith to recede and we allow our confidence in the Lord to kind of diminish even though we know the author of the universe and the Lord of all things and the one who is our Savior and the one who is our Lord and the one who calls us His children. We know Him, but we go to, oh, what am I going to do? Paul and Silas are confident in the Lord. Even though every single aspect of their circumstances would dictate fear and worry. They have no idea how the Lord's going to deliver them. But they do know that He is faithful and He's good. And He has not put this, them in this situation to abandon them. He watches over them. He knows what's going on. And He's not going to fail them. Listen, when the enemy starts to accuse you and he starts to lie to you and say the Lord's toying with you, when he starts to tell you that you're not strong enough to endure whatever you are in this morning, remember that the Lord has led you to this point and know that it is by His sovereign purpose that you are there and that He will be faithful to complete the work that He has started in you and that He will never, ever, ever fail you or forsake you. God is sufficient. And Paul writes about this later in Philippians 4.11. He says, oh, I've learned to be content. In all things, whether life is difficult or whether I'm abounding and things are wonderful, I have learned that the secret of life is to be content in the Lord. And now he and Silas, by faith, are living that way. So they pray with joy and confidence. And they sing with joy and confidence. And I want you to notice the detail at the end of this verse. It is so wonderful and it impressed me in my heart so much this week as the Lord spoke to me. Look at the end of the verse. I'm going to find the verse. Sorry, I should know this. There it is, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Look at the next words. And the prisoners were listening to them. Everything's completely dark. You saw a picture of the cell. Everything's completely dark. Think of the loneliness, the personal despair, the agony of that cell block. And in the midst of the darkness in the night, as it's quiet, and maybe you hear an occasional moan, all of a sudden, you start to hear praise songs. And voices are calling out in confidence to the Lord of all things. And they're singing praise to Him, and rejoicing in Him, and honoring Him. The normal sounds would have been prisoners yelling about injustice, or, or cursing, and, and saying all kinds of filth. Or yelling, I want to get out, let me out. Come on, warden, let me out. And then everything kind of settles down. And you start to hear praise. And you start to hear rejoicing. And these words are pure and holy. And I honestly believe, the text doesn't specify, I honestly believe nobody was calling out, hey, you guys shut up. You guys be quiet. 
Because the text says, look at it again, that they just listened. I love that word. That word is very personal. Let it sink into your heart this morning. Imagine the scene in your mind as praise sounded out of the darkness in Philippi and the prisoners maybe somewhere asleep, maybe somewhere just sitting there thinking all the thoughts they were in their head. And as they're sitting there in the darkness, all of a sudden they hear songs to the Lord and they recognize in their hearts that this is the spiritual hope that each of them wanted. And they just sit and they just listen. You know, there's an important spiritual principle in those seven words in verse 25. We need to always recognize that how we respond in crisis is noticed by others. People expect us as Christians to live for the Lord when things are good. That's a given. We should never, ever fail in that. But when times of difficulty come, that's when they really watch to see if our faith is real and if it's going to endure. And and what's vital about this is not how we come across. We should represent the sufficiency and the strength of the Lord anyway. So, So in times of trial, they're not watching to see how we handle it. What is even more important is that it presents us an opportunity to not only show them that we trust, but inspire them and encourage them to trust too. If they see us enduring, if they see our faith, if they see the strength of our conviction, if they recognize that the mercy and love and power of God is evident in us, then they are going to know that our faith is authentic. They're going to know that this is real. If we can trust God when things aren't easy, that's going to influence them. So we have to we have to confidently move forward in our faith in times of difficulty because people are watching and listening and they're going to be influenced to see that Christ is enough. If we don't do that, then they're going to be pushed away from the Lord. They're going to say, well, in times of difficulty, they didn't trust. See, Paul and Silas are praising the Lord when it seems like everything in them would want to just recover. They've been beaten, they're bleeding, they're open. All right, we've got to take a couple days, we've got to get healthy, let's try to figure out our next move. Should we apologize and bargain our way out of here? Or, or should we prepare for a defense? We didn't get one in the first place, they didn't give us time to even defend ourselves, so there's nothing to indicate that we're going to have an opportunity to do that. But you know what, we should develop some sort of plan. We're humans, we need a plan, we at least need some kind of contingency. If they come for us, what's our first response? Are we going to say, hey, this is wrong? Are we going to say, please let us out of here? We need to mess up the situation. We'll we'll repay those people that lost. What are they going to do? Because the human mind says, make a plan. The reality is, even if they had planned something, it wouldn't have mattered because the Lord doesn't work according to our plans. The Lord doesn't work according to our plans. He had something different planned. And he was waiting for them to seek him and yield to his plans. Proverbs 16 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And with that in mind, the psalmist says in the same, uh, excuse me, the Spirit says in the same passage, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. In other words, seek the Lord first, commit 
that you will yield to his leading and then set the plans in motion, knowing that he can change them at any moment. And if he does change them at any moment, it's going to be a much better result than what you and I planned. Their only plan at this point is to sit there and to pray and to praise God. It's not a bad plan, is it? They're not formulating strategy. They're not thinking about what to say next. They're not figuring out all the angles. They're just praising the Lord. And they can't anticipate what the Lord would do next. It's as sudden in its provision as it is in its violence. Look at the text. There's a great earthquake and it rattles the prison building and it opens all the doors to the cells. Now, we might expect that in an earthquake. If you see the cave, if the earth's going to shake, we could assume that the natural phenomenon of the earth shaking would mean that those cell doors would probably swing open. But the Spirit includes another detail in there that is not natural. It says the cell doors swung open, but the chains around every prisoner also became unfastened. Now, you would think that in an earthquake, things would get twisted and things would start falling on the prisoners. But the hand of the Lord is such that like there's an invisible key, all the locks are opened and the chains fall off. And the cell doors are there and there's an opportunity to run and you would assume that any prisoner would look for that opportunity to escape, especially in all the chaos of an earthquake and they get out the door as fast as possible. That would be the, the instant human instinct. But I want you to see in the text that not one person Some time has to pass as the jailer wakes up and he puts clothes on and he lights a torch and he runs in and he realizes that all the doors are open. He probably can't see into the cells because they're still dark. But as he comes into the main hallway and he puts his torch out and the light illuminates that hall, he realizes every single jail cell is open. And he assumes what any of us would assume. He assumes that everybody's gone. And because everybody's gone, that means a death sentence for him because he has been told to guard the prisoners, especially Paul and Silas. So in fear and anxiety of what he knows is going to be coming, that there's going to be a trial and that he's going to be killed, he pulls out his sword and he thinks, I'm just going to take my own life. I'll spare myself the indignity. And Paul cries out, don't do it. We're all here. Stop what you're doing. Maybe Paul heard him cry out misery. Oh, no, they're all gone. And he, and he hears the sword being unsheathed. We don't know. But for some reason, Paul is able to anticipate what's going on. And he says, don't do it. Why would he do that? This man is keeping him in jail against his will with unfair charges. Why not get out of there as fast as he could? Or why not try to at least rush the guy and bull past him and get out? But he doesn't leave. And nobody else does either. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why doesn't anybody leave? Now, based on what we see in verse 25, and based on the knowledge that we have about the early church and how they learned to see God's leading through everything, I believe there are two logical reasons that I want you to see this morning, maybe write down. Two logical reasons why they stayed. The Lord, I believe, really put this on my heart this week. I had never seen it from this angle before. And I really tried to understand why 
Why didn't they go? I've known all my life that they didn't go. We sang uh, about this and studied this even as little kids. But I've never really sat and said, why didn't they leave? I believe there are two reasons. First of all, I believe that when the cells opened and the chains fell off, that Paul and Silas didn't leave because they had a greater sense that the Lord was going to work through this. I think they sat there, even as the stocks fell off, even as their chains fell off, even as the door opened, and they said, don't move. God's about to work. Now, because they were so filled with the Spirit of God, they had a deep understanding, not only of the Lord's leading, but of what He wanted to accomplish through that leading. And how many of us would like more of that this morning? I would like in my life a greater sense of God's leading and what He wants to accomplish through that leading. They saw this through the eyes of faith, not the things that we see tangibly. Listen now. Not not just what we know. They saw through the eyes of faith things that are invisible but still obvious. That's what gave them the sense of confidence and contentment to stay there in the cell praising God. They had had to endure severe pain. They had to endure the question of why the Lord was in utilizing this method to, to use them in ministry. But they also knew that the Lord had allowed them to be in this situation because he wanted to do something. God wasn't just going to play games. All right, you guys are going to get beaten and arrested, but in the middle of the night, I'm just going to kick you out with an earthquake. That was fun. We really pulled one over on them, didn't we? That's not what God was doing. They suffered because God was creating an opportunity for ministry that they did not anticipate and that they could not have done if they hadn't been there. And by faith, you and I have to recognize when the Lord does this in our lives. It's why this wedding today is so meaningful and so personal to me. My parents have been coming to this hotel for six years, six and a half years, as long as I've lived here. And they would tell me, we talked to this nice server down in the restaurant. Her name was Bonnie. And and they would talk about how they would talk about the Lord with her. And then Irv, who was our Lydia, he was our first person to be saved at Harbor Rock. So you have what God has done. They're both walking with the Lord now. They're making a commitment that they never felt convicted to do before. And I have to wonder, without the difficulty that we have endured in the last two years, would this have happened? We've had to go through things in our own lives where we've had difficulty and there's, I don't even want to use the word suffering because I don't think it's fair in comparison to Acts 16. But let's just, let's just say it for the sake of argument. Some of us, many of us, been through difficulty and trial and, and, and hardship, so to speak. But look at the outcome of it. We see what God is doing and the purposes that God has right now, today, after the service. We're going to see it again. See, walking by faith means listening to the Spirit, learning to recognize His voice, studying His words, so when the Spirit seeks, we say, that's Him. And even in difficult times, we need to be saying, Lord, how do you want to use this 
so you can be glorified, so your name can be proclaimed, so the people respond to the gospel. They sat in that cell and they sang. They praised God. And that's what I believe leads to the second thought. First thought, they didn't leave because they had a greater sense of what the Lord was going to do. Second thought, none of the other prisoners left, I believe, because they had been so captivated listening to these men pray and praise the Lord that they wanted to see what Paul and Silas would do when the opportunity came to escape. As they sat and listened, and all of a sudden this violent earthquake shakes the jail cells, and their doors open, and they realize that freedom is possible. This is my belief out of studying this text. I believe that they sat there and waited to hear what Paul and Silas would do. Don't overlook or underestimate the power of those seven words at the end of verse 25 because the influence of their worship and prayer was so strong. It's not illogical that Paul and Silas stayed. But I've tried to come up with any other reason why everyone else didn't get out of there as fast as they could. And this is the only one that makes any sense. The doors open, the chains come off, And yet the other prisoners' hearts had been opened up to the Lord and they had listened to the prayer and the praise and they saw that it was real and authentic and amazing. So when the earthquake hits and everything stops, they wait. And again, they listen. And they hear the jailer come in in emotional turmoil and he's crying out and he pulls out his sword and they hear Paul cry out, Don't harm yourself! And right there, every one of them listens as the Lord's purpose is revealed. And the jailer starts to tremble and he goes in and he falls before these Jewish prisoners and then he pulls them out into the common area where everybody could hear the conversation and he says to them, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have that kind of spiritual confidence and that kind of hope? Not, why didn't you leave? Or who are you guys? Or why do you have such joy and contentment? He knew the answer to it. He had been listening to them praying. He had been listening to them singing through the night. And he had never heard such a thing. In all the years of being a jailer, he had never heard somebody praise God. He's not some passive, feeble guy that's like, oh, what do I do to know? This guy is a jailer. He has control of all the prisoners. He's not prone to mercy, and he's not prone to be sensitive, but he knows the truth when he hears it. And he says, what do I need to do? How can I have that kind of confidence? And for the first time, the light of the gospel shines out of the darkness of that Philippian cell, and the first time, the light of the gospel shines in the darkness of his heart. And they give him the very simple answer. Believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, Philippian jailer, you've heard lots of theories and lots of religions and lots of philosophies throughout the years. But we're here to tell you, you want to know why we're singing and praising God? Because we have put our confidence in Jesus Christ. The Son of God who died for us, took our sins upon himself and was buried, and then on the third day he rose again and promised us eternal life if we believe in him. So Philippian jailer, trust in him, and you can have the exact same confidence and joy and hope 
that we have. And immediately in that moment, we're done. The, the man puts his confidence in Christ. And then they go back to the house and he starts to wash their wounds and they start to speak the truth of the word of God and they speak the gospel and every single person in his house trusts Christ. And right there, they're baptized because they want to declare, we're Christ now. And then I love the phrase at the end of verse 34. It says that they all rejoiced greatly. The same confidence, the same hope, the same joy that he had listened to all throughout the evening before the earthquake hits. Now it's in his house. And what started with Lydia and that first conversion and that expanded into her family now moves into this jailer's family. And I've wondered, as Paul wrote years later from another jail cell, how many of the people that he wrote to in the Philippian church were in this situation. When Paul wrote, count it all joy, Have this mind that's in you, that's in Christ Jesus. He was writing that to the Philippian jailer. He was writing that to his family. He was writing that to Lydia and all her family. He was probably even writing it to former prisoners who had been there that night when the jail cells went open. Paul loved the Philippian church. The Philippian church was the one that was faithful to the Lord and to his ministry. So when he wrote, oh, you provided for all our needs... And when he writes, I've learned to be content and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. They knew exactly what he meant because they watched him live it. They saw it in his life and they knew it was real. We don't know what happened to the other prisoners. But apparently they stayed there. There's no record of them leaving. There doesn't seem to be any buzz about it the next day. The town's not in an uproar because a bunch of prisoners escaped. Paul and Silas spend the bulk of the night in the Philippian jailer's house. And then the text tells us that they go back to their cell. Listen to that. After they rejoiced with him and the family got saved and baptized and they ate and got some dressing on their wounds. They went back to their cell. And it seems to indicate that the jailer even put them back in their stocks. Now, what a statement about their faith that even after they knew that they had been put in that cell to witness to the jailer and they could have walked away with a clear conscience. Lord, you did it. You showed us why we're here. People got saved. It's been wonderful. Now, you know, we were put here unfairly, so we're just going to take off. Is that okay? Instead, they say, our testimony's not done. Take us back. And they go back to the cell and they're put back in their stocks. Why? Because they still have some truth to give out. Look at verse 35. Read a couple more verses and pray. When the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent in to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, "Mm, I don't think so. That's not in the text, but that's what he said. They've beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, speaking of themselves. They've thrown us in prison, and now they want to send us away secretly? (laughs) There's the, I don't think so. No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid, I would think so, when they heard that they were Romans, and they came up and appealed to them, 
when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison. They're not so strong now, are they? Went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The testimony wasn't done. And when they come and say, we want to let you out, which means that the beating was meant as a warning. It was meant to, to shut them up, a scare tactic. They say, we're not going to put up with that. You were unjust to us. We're Roman citizens. You shouldn't have done this. That means the injustice was exponentially worse because they had beaten Roman citizens and Roman citizens had rights. They say, you guys come down here and get us out yourselves. Don't, don't send word through some messenger. You come down here. And the leaders are completely intimidated and they're scared. And they say, please, please leave us. So they say, fine. And they encourage Lydia's family and they go. But the end of the spiritual influence in Philippi is not done. Town will never be the same. Paul will come back twice, starting in chapter 20. And then he'll write that great letter. And five years later, when he writes to them and, and writes the letter that we know as Philippians... The church has a local and global influence. Historians actually credit Paul's ministry as being what caused the church to thrive all the way through to the 5th century because they had stood boldly for the Lord. God utilizes us in ways when we're not aware of what's coming. God uses us in times when we're in opposition where we can pray for people and where we can have boldness and where that attitude of praise permeates everything. That's what he's called us to. Let's pray together. With your eyes closed, let me just talk to you for a second. I know I've talked a lot and you've listened so well. I don't know what God's allowing you to go through right now. But I pray that through that you are praising Him. And you are honoring Him and trusting Him. Even if it's a time of difficulty. But I want to encourage each of us right now to go before the Lord and say, Lord, there are doors of opportunity that you're laying in front of me that I need to be aware of and I need to respond to. God is providing for us. He's doing a fresh work in our lives every day. He's got mercy ready for us so that we'll be equipped. His Spirit provides so we'll have the words to say. His Spirit leads so we'll understand what the opportunity is. Now we need to respond. And I don't know what that is in your life this morning whether it's serving in a ministry, whether it's sacrificing financially, whether it's looking at a friend or a neighbor that needs the gospel. I don't know what it is. It's between you and the Lord. But I pray that as he shows you that opportunity, that you will respond. Father, you want to work in miraculous ways in our life. You want to do so many things that will bring honor and praise to you. And Father, we need the wisdom and the discernment and the understanding to know when those doors of opportunity fling open and when we can stand for you and represent you and talk about you to a world that desperately needs you this morning. Lord, equip us with boldness this morning. 
Equip us with strength. Move us past our fear and our anxiety. Move us past our stubbornness in what we want. Lord, we're all stubborn. And Lord, we pray that in the next weeks throughout this summer, that in our own lives and in this church, you would do an amazing work. Lord, in two weeks, many kids are going to come to our ministry center. I pray that we would serve them well and that we would share the gospel with them and hearts would be changed for all eternity. We praise you and honor you, Lord. The evidence of your blessing and the evidence of your hand is all around us. Even this morning and the next few minutes as we celebrate Irv and Bonnie's marriage, Lord, your hand is obvious and we praise you for that. We thank you. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said together, Amen.